This is Coast and County Radio's Extra Time Podcast in association with Scarborough College and powered by Grundon Graphics. 97.4 FM, through the Vales, across the Moors and along the coast. Extra Time, sporting reviews and opinions from those in the know. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening to everyone. You are listening to a brand new episode of the Coast and County Radio Extra Time podcast brought to you by Scarborough College. This episode is kindly sponsored by the Valley Bar Sea Dogs and they are Scarborough Athletic Football Club's Supporters Travel Club. Um, for more information, you can visit their Facebook, Twitter, social media sites to find out information about travel to away games um, this season and the seasons to come um, as well. So you can get involved with the Valley Bar Sea Dogs. So once again, thanks for sponsoring this episode. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by Scarborough FC legend, Aidy Mayer. Aidy, how are you doing this evening? Yeah, I'm good, Charlie. Very, very happy to be here speaking to you this evening. Yeah, and has, uh, have you been busy with work? Uh, yeah, work's been a bit funny one with COVID. It's uh, I went self-employed in uh, in February last year, just as COVID kicked off, which kind of dented all of my my dreams and aspirations. So I managed to find a little bit of work to get me by. But yeah, everything's all good, mate. All good. Brilliant. Well, uh, Eddie, when I looked back at your career, you made. Um, and not too shabby, 144 appearances for Scarborough FC with 12 goals to your name um, before eventually departing in 1995. How did you find the early days playing on the Yorkshire coast? Um, it, it came as a bit of a shock, to be honest. I've been released by Derby County as an age of 17, 16. So schoolboys, I was a schoolboy from to Derby and got released to play for Burton Albion. And we ended up playing Scarborough in a, in a testimonial or, or a friendly game against Scarborough. And, uh, I ended up playing for Scarborough that night against Burton Albion because Brian Fiddler, the manager of Burton, wanted to put one over on Warnock. So I ended up not again the game at Burton, but having to play for Scarborough. So after that, they took me up to Scarborough and uh, me and uh, me and Tim Browning, who's a, a childhood friend of mine, both went up from from Burton Albion for uh, for a trial. And we both got kept on as, as Scarborough's first apprentices. That was in 19... 19- I want to say 88. So, um, so yeah, we settled up there. We had, we had various digs um, uh, and, and really enjoyed and quickly adapted to the life in Scarborough. But football was never kind of where I thought I would end up uh, at that early age. It was more cricket at that time. But, uh, yeah, it was a great opportunity to have with, uh, with Scarborough and really appreciated the opportunity that Neil and the rest of the staff up there gave to me and some of the other guys. Yeah, definitely. I know that Scarborough is a little bit out on a whim um, to most places like football clubs and the pool of players is a little bit slimmer. Did you find the transition to moving out onto the coast uh, an easy one for you at such a young age? Um, no, I mean, I was always quite independent as a kid anyway. Um, you know, I was always out and about, um, whether it was sport or socialising. So I was, I was quite quite happy in my own skin living wherever I wanted to live. And, and by moving up there, um, you know, it gave me even more independence. I think I grew a lot, a lot quicker into into a, into a young man rather than being a you know kid that's just left school. So it was a, it was it wasn't a difficult transition. Um, um, I mean, living I've, I've always, I grew up in Derby, so living in Derby, it's not it's not a huge city anyway. So moving to Scarborough wasn't a a massive difference. Um, 
you know, there's, it's, we've got our big district here. Obviously, you've got the coasts and the beaches and, you know, Dolby Forest, etc. So there's a lot of similarities in, in quite a lot of the areas apart from the, apart from the coast, but, uh, they're quickly adapted and, and settled in very, very quickly, to be honest, up in the, on just off North Marine Road in a, in one of, uh, uh, the digs that were put up in one of the B&Bs down by the cricket ground. Yeah. And, um, you know, when was your, when was your last trip over to, to the coast? Last time I came over was uh, you mentioned the Valley the Valley Bar Sea Dog sponsoring the uh, podcast tonight, but got invited with Jason Rocket, Ian Einstein, and Darren Foreman over to do a I think they call it a Black Death vodka night where us four who, who wore that shirt came back into the Q and A with the guys. So that was just before that was probably the February or the January before COVID. Um, I came over to the opening of the of the new stadium, which uh, again came with Jason and. Uh, and Ian Ironside and met a few of the other guys there. John Ashton came along. So it was good to see all those familiar faces. Um, and we, we holidayed occasionally up in Cloughton, the little uh, uh, cottage that we used to rent in Cloughton, to spend quite a bit of time in between Scarborough, Whitby, you know, that kind of area, um, with some friends and family. So it's, it's always been somewhere I'd like to go back to. Um, uh, it's just, it just kills me every time you drive past where the ground used to be and it's, it's not there and, you know, there's a supermarket and things like that. So that's sad, but... Uh, they're great times up there and great memories, Charlie. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you just mentioned there about, um, about you know, where the ground used to be. And I'm sure um, driving past it, as, as you mentioned, is, is quite a tough thing. When you sort of talk about Scarborough and, and playing for the football club, does it just bring back, you know, loads of happy memories of, of the time that you did spend at the club? Yeah, um, mostly happy memories. I mean, there were a few sort of downsides to it, but obviously... Getting the opportunity to go there with 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 Neil in the first place and and, and getting set up straight. I, I think we, we signed on the on the on, on sort of Wednesday. And I think the following Wednesday I was playing in the reserves with Craig Shorts over at Peterborough and Paul Kendall and Charlie Fountain and um, Chris Shaw and some of these other guys are still at Hamill. Um, so from you know being in in the youth team in the reserves at, at Burton Albion, I was playing at, at Peterborough's ground. You know, at that time I hadn't played in a ground of that sort of size. Um, so it was, uh, you know, those kind of memories early on and obviously my league debut, my first goal, um, you know, racking up a hundred appearances and, you know, having some great nights. Unfortunately, I missed out on quite a few of the good nights due to an injury. So they're the bad points that I look back on the, you know, the Arsenal game. I didn't play in the Coventry City game. I didn't play in the Plymouth game. I didn't play in, you know, those games. I missed that whole season through injury, which is a real tough time. Um, but overall, yeah, the, 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 just getting in on the on the minibus or on the coach and going to Torquay and playing on the Tuesday night seven hour eight hour trip still still was good fun. It wasn't it wasn't a task for it. It was just a, a brilliant experience. And you know we had we played Southampton in my time there. Um, played against Red Star Belgrade. Played against Leeds in a pre season friendly. You know, played against some big clubs that were playing fourth division football at that time, like Cambridge and Blackpool were down there. Um, Cambridge uh, kind of kind of went out of the league and came back in, but Cardiff City, Burnley, um, Swansea. So you know, to play some good grounds and, and play league football was, I wouldn't say it was a dream come true because I never th- I never thought it was going to happen. As a kid, yeah, you want to be a footballer, but it gets to the point where you don't even think it's going to happen anymore. And all of a sudden, you're playing alongside some some great players in, in you know in the fourth division in the football league. And yeah, it's kind of not pinch yourself, but you kind of feel privileged to be doing it. Um, yeah, I'm very lucky to have been part of what I consider is one of the best non-league clubs ever, but also had a you know decent spell in the league. So uh, yeah, very privileged, Charlie. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was looking back, um, you mentioned that there you'd played against sides like Burnley, Southampton, I mean, Red Star Belgrade going a little bit further afield um, into Europe. How did you find the the step up against these sides, these sides that are now established top tier teams? Well, it's, it's all relative, isn't it? I mean, you look at you look at the players that we played against that these big clubs have, they weren't any bigger than what we had. You know, we had people like Tommy Mooney playing for us and we had people like Steve Charles, Steve Richards. Uh, now, these people were very good players at Scarborough. So to go and play at Cardiff when you're, you know, I, I didn't know any of the Cardiff players apart from one guy, Nathan Blake, who played up from, I think he'd just been released by Chelsea. This was his first year at Cardiff. You know, and you hear about people like that. So even though we were playing these bigger clubs, they weren't, in my eyes, a better team than us. They had history and, and tradition of being big league clubs, but we were a big club anyway in, you know, in non-league football, you know, just making our way in the league. So I don't think we were daunted by anywhere we went. Um, occasionally you'd come across players that you, you'd heard of or seen on TV and you'd think, well, I'm on the same pitch as him. Um, but, uh, yeah, things like that, I don't think phased any of us. We had, we had a really good attitude, a real good kind of team spirit in all the teams I played for. While I was at Seymour uh, Road, so it wasn't anything that you know kind of concerned us too much about going to a Burnley or, or to a Cardiff. Yeah, definitely. Um, now you mentioned Neil, and it was, um, if I'm right, it was Neil Warnock that brought you to the club and was your manager. And um, now everyone in football will know Neil Warnock um, and and the success that he's had. How did you find playing for um, such a great manager like Neil? Well, firstly, uh, getting up there, we were the first. There's me, Tim, and a guy called um, John Needler from all of the first apprentices that he took on at, at Scarborough. Um, so in that first year, it was quite difficult because there was no professionals training with us day in, day out. You know, they used to come on a Tuesday and a Thursday night. Um, so me and Tim and John would just do duties around the ground. We'd go to college. We'd do a bit of training. Mitch Cook used to take us for training, so we'd train with them. But Neil would always find odd jobs for me. You know, I used to do his car every Friday. I'd have to clean his car on a Friday. I used to have to go up to his house and sweep the leaves off his uh, off his drive. Um, you know, I, I never played for nearly the first team. I think I was still in the youth team and the reserves when when he left. Um, I went off to Notts County. Um, I kind of had a little, you know, thought in the back of my mind. I was living in Nottingham at the time. I bought a house in Long Eaton with my, my girlfriend at the time. Um, and then you know, I thought, well, he's come to Notts. He's down the road from where I live. Might something happen? He took Shorty, he took the other Shorty, Christian, he took uh, Steve Norris, took Gary Brook. I just thought, is he going to call me? But no, he didn't. You know, I was, I was too young and I hadn't played any games at that point. So, uh, but, but playing for Neil was, um, it was different. You know, a lot of people talk about his coaching, that he doesn't do a lot of coaching, but you know, he doesn't need to. He has, he has enough about him as a, as a manager, at, um, a man manager, and, you know, to make people run through brick walls for him. And you can see by the amount of people he's signed, um, and signed again and signed again. People like Paddy Kenny, the goalkeeper. You know, people like Shorty's played for him a few times. Kev Blackbell's been with him everywhere he's gone. So he's the kind of guy that just instills confidence in people and, and makes people run through brick walls for him. So uh, it was a pleasure to spend, I think, 18 months with him. And I actually did save his life as well, Charlie. We were coming back from... Uh, we were coming back from... We had um, a... Uh, I think it was a fans kind of open training session one Sunday morning at the ground. I think all the players and the managers had been out the night before. So uh, he got in his car and he said, can me or Tim drive back home? She used to drop us off on the M1 near Derby. And me and Tim hadn't passed our tests. So we said, no, Neil, you'll have, you'll have to drive. 
And at one point, he had the windows open, Luther Vandross blasting loud, air conditioning on. <laughs> and we were in the outside lane of the M1, and he fell asleep and went from the outside lane across the next lane, across the next lane, till I grabbed hold of his steering wheel and shouted, Gaffer! Gaffer! And he woke up, and then we whoa, 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 steadied himself, and we drove a little bit slower and a little bit more safe after that. So I think he has me to thank for his, his successful career. <laughs> no way. That is... Yeah, well, very, very scary. Very, yeah, very scary. Um, well, I'm a Middlesbrough fan, so I know okay. now firsthand what Neil Warnock's like. Um, yeah. I guess you don't get a chance to speak to many players that have played under Neil Warnock, but the videos that emerge on social media of him absolutely screaming the changing rooms down, was, yeah, was yeah. that a... Was that is that a true reflection of what Neil Warnock was like during a game, or was it more a little bit more like he would he would nurture you as a player, and that would just sort of be again? Game? Even the, I never played first team for Neil, but I remember a game at Walsall. I'd scored an own goal. I think I lobbed Blackie from about twenty five yards, but I scored one from the other end. And I remember him kind of tearing into me at half time. And I'm I'm not sure how I want to be managed, whether I'd want an arm around me or a bollock telling off. So, you know, he, but he actually gave me a bit of a rollick and it made me kind of think, right, I need, I need to make things right here. And I went out and had a lot better game second half, obviously scored an equaliser. And you know, afterwards, there was a few choice words that he had for me. But it made me, made me realise that, you know, I needed to knuckle down or do things differently or listen a bit more or, you know, just kind of be you know, a little bit more receptive to what was going on around me. So, uh, but yeah, I have, I have seen him dish out a few, uh, a few rantings and ravings when I've been picking up shorts off the, off the changing room floor, tidying up after the first team in, in a few home and away games. So, uh, yeah, he's, um, I've got nothing, nothing bad to say about the guy and he's proved himself time and time and time again, you know, most successful promotion manager you could ever have. I'm a Derby fan. I've been waiting to come here for years. If he came and helped us get out of our division, it would be a, be a godsend. But I think that time's passed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, your 144th appearance has, has come and gone and you are then looking like the end is 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 nigh for your time at Scarborough. Um, just what were your sort of overall feelings about about leaving the club and, and you know, moving on to, to Pastures New? Yeah, it was sad. Um, I didn't have my, uh, my, my ACL in 92. And at that point, we didn't have a full-time physio. Um, I was being trained by um, one of the, the rugby league, uh, one of the whole rugby league teams physio, who trained with us and, co- and physio probably two days a week at that time. Um, so I never really got my fitness fully back after that year. Then I had a, had a couple of groin injuries, a couple of uh, hernias, and me, um, me cartilage trim. I never actually got got properly fit again. And as, as the fans all know, you know, I used to put weight on quite easily. It was difficult to shift. Um, and it, be, it became it became quite hard. I think I played another probably another sixty odd games, seventy odd games after my injury. Um, but it, it, through discussions with the uh, with the surgeon and the consultant, that it was basically said to me, if you want to walk you know, to the park with your with your kids and play football at the age of thirty, you need to stop. Um, so that that was quite hard to take. Um, sent me into a bit of a down, downward spiral, if I'm honest. After after leaving the club. Um, I want to play a little bit of non-league football for VS Rugby, um, but I only, I only did pre-season with them, and then I just, I just couldn't get motivated to do it. So I ended up, you know, just getting on with my life and walking away from football at, at the age of 25, Charlie, which is quite tough. Um, yeah, things could have been different, you know. Had we had a full-time physio, had we, uh, you know, somebody might have, you know, done something different with me along the way. Um, but you know, at the time we didn't, we couldn't, we couldn't afford it. It was a small club on a small budget, and 
And unfortunately, things like that happen. So, uh, yeah, real tough leaving the club, leaving football and, and having to carve out a career in something completely different. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, recently in the news or today, we'll have heard that, you know, Jack Grealish is moving to Manchester City for, for what, £100 yeah. million. Pounds. I mean, yeah. it, it must be hard to understand for players that actually non-league players do have second jobs or, or yeah. they, yeah. they don't earn as much money as, as the top players. But as you mentioned, yeah. at 25, um, learning that you're going to have to potentially retire. What was sort of the the initial feeling? What How did, how long did it take you to overcome such a, a, you know, a big statement like that from, from the doctor? You know what? It, it took a long, long time, Charlie, if I'm honest. I mean, I mean a long, long time. And it's been something that you know, I still think about. It still kind of doesn't sit easy with me that, you know, that that happened and because you, you don't know what might have happened, you know, that, that could have been it. I could have got released anyway and I could have been not taken up by anybody. You know, but there could also have been a chance that I might have gone to, I don't know, Donny Rovers or to Scunny or whatever for pre-season, lost some weight, got fit, got some proper treatment and, and made a full recovery. You don't know. And that's kind of the always thing for me. It's it's difficult to let go that, you know, you don't know what could have happened. I mean, I, I, it's taken me a while to, to get to a point where things are okay, you know, but I, I, I had to do it for the right reasons. But now I, I struggle to walk some days um, with my knees and my ankles. And, you know, you think you know, the consultants were right. So you have to kind of look back and think, well, there's nothing else I could have done differently. It was the right decision to do, but it's still mentally hard to, to, to actually walk away from being a professional footballer to getting up at four o'clock onto a market store selling socks and tights, which is what I did. Um, yeah, so really tough. But like you said, I think Steve Norris came to us from, he's come from Telford, I think. Um, and he, he had his own business. You know, he was earning good money running, I think, he had a kitchen uh, design and build company and an installation company. So for him to kind of come to Scarborough, I think he took a he took a wage cut um, to come and play league football. Um, you know, so it is difficult, difficult. You see what people are earning now. I've got no issues with what people earn in football. I know some people have, but... You know, I'd rather the players be getting in, the fat cats that are running the clubs getting in. You know, as long as the club's sustainable and can work in, you know, within kind of their constraints and their budgets and their revenue, you know, I don't care if you're going to pay Jack Grealish half a million quid a, you know, a week because the, the money's there in football now. It, it, it is what it is. And, you know, people can command that. If somebody offers you a rise at work, you're not going to say no. If somebody offers you a better job on triple, four times the wages you're going to say yes, please. So you can't blame the footballers. Football has gone crazy with money, but it is what it is. It's, 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 it's market demands, isn't it? And it's what the market force, you know, if, if the money's there from sponsors, from the, from Sky, from all the Champions League sponsorship, yeah, it needs to go somewhere. So what, as long as it doesn't go to the agents, because they seem to be lining their pockets, but I have no issues with the players getting it. But like you mentioned before, the non-league and the lower leagues, you know, especially with, the, with COVID and the pandemic, it's, Surprise! We haven't seen clubs go under yet. It is a worry. Yeah, you know, you mentioned there. Um, there's a quite a few um, well-documented bad-run clubs, isn't there? That, uh, that, that a lot of there's a big divide between supporters and um, uh, and uh, owners. I mean, Scarborough now yeah. coming back as a fan-owned club, um, yeah. Yeah. and you know, trying to be as sustainable as possible. It must be nice now to see the. The rebuild of, of of the town's football club and it returning back to home after all these years away at Bridlington. Yes, it's lovely to see. Um, and I think it only coincided with me taking a little bit of, of interest back into it and, and kind of learning a little bit more about what happened in those 10 years of, of being down the road or, you know, when we went to Extinct. Because at the time I was a, you know, I kind of 
didn't forget about Scott, but I kind of put it to the back of my mind a little bit. There was some financial business still to be sorted out, which never got sorted out in the club. And I kind of turned my back on it a little bit, but following it lately and, and seeing that they were moving back home to, to Scarborough gave me a little bit of a, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the fans fault that I have a little bit of ill will towards the board at the time. Um, and it was nice to, to start getting involved again. And when I say involved, I mean, speaking to some of the guys that, that are on, on social media, you know, Steve Adamson, Stuart Walsh and all these people that they've kind of kept in touch over the years. Um, and to see the ground being built and you know, seeing what it is. I know it's not our ground, but it's, it's, it's a home, you know what I mean? And it's, I came up to the Sheffield United game when they played the under-23s to open the ground, and it was great to see, you know, over a 1,000 people in there because the, the, the crowds can sustain the football club. I mean, you're never going to get four or 5,000 a week but you know, for a home game. If we can keep it above the 1,500, you know, it's, it's up there with the biggest clubs outside non-league, like South Shield and some of the guys in the conference in New York Cities and some of those, but it's... You know, the club do need to have the support of the community in the local areas and seeing some good promotions about painting it red and things like that at the moment. So as long as that continues and there's, you know, the, 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 the actual, the local area gets behind the club, um, there's no reason why it can't go on for strength to strength. I don't know where the club wants to go. I don't know what's, what their achievements are with, with Jonathan Greening coming in and, and, and Trevor Bull leading, you know, in my opinion, very, very well of what's going on there. So it's just where the club wants to go and, you know, does it want to get back in the football league? Does it want to stay where it is, you know, going up and down over two or three years? It's good. You get promotion this year, stay in the league, then you might get relegated, then you might win it again. It's it's not a bad place to be. Um, but do they want to be a league club? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, just turning back to, to yourself and, and professional football is, is now behind you. And as you mentioned there, you, you're selling socks and tights on a market stall in Mansfield, yeah. um, which yeah. is you know, the highs of, of, of one and then and then potentially yeah, yeah, yeah. down to the low. Just just how does it feel to be stood behind the market stall back to making money by, you know, being, you know, selling um, selling products on, on, a, on a smartphone? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It took a while. I mean, I was I was doing those. It was my first wife's business. She was a market trader. So, you know, I had nothing when I came out. I went and did my coaching badges for cricket uh, to a senior level. Um, the idea was to go and work with my dad, who was at that time living in Durban um, uh, and going to work in an academy out there. But he kind of advised against that due to the nature of what's going on and what was going on in South Africa at the time. So I had to work and I did um, I did some, like I say, a, a few months, maybe half a year on the market still. Um, during that time, when I was at the YTS at Scarborough, we had to do a day release at college and we did sports and recreation. So I kind of followed that up and went down the route of an ISRM, which is Institute, Institute of Sport and Recreation Management. So basically I had to run a runner leisure centre. So I was doing that at college. I got a job working as a lifeguard, a receptionist, a um, the locker, a locker room guy, just just in, a, in in the local golf club, but you know, in their health club. And within a year, I moved up to membership sales and into system management. Then I moved over to Lincoln to run a club with with Andy Mockler, who used to play for Scarborough. He offered me a job over at uh, health club over in, in Lincoln. Then I came back to Derby as a manager of JJB Soccer Dome, uh, the health club of the Soccer Dome. And then went on to work for Duncan Ballantyne for four years. Um, so I, I, I got into health club management quite quickly. Um, which I enjoyed. I'm a people person. I love speaking to people, I love getting on with people. Um, and that kind of suited me down to the ground. And then 
Yeah, then, then moving over to to fitness equipment sales, selling treadmills, bikes, strength machine, you know, designing gyms on you know on two D, three D layouts, and kind of delivering that that kind of um, project for a, for a, for an operator uh, was 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 enjoyable. Um, you still miss and you still crave the days of just being in the changing rooms and taking the mickey out of each other and kicking the ball around on the beach or up at Oliver's Mound. You really do miss it. I'm not just saying that you do miss it. And I think that's the hardest thing of trying to substitute that um, that kind of emotion, that kind of feeling on a daily basis. The nearest I've got to it is working in a sales team at one of the fitness equipment suppliers where I'm still friends with the guys that I met in 2007. They're close friends you know, to me and, you know, 12 years ago. That's the nearest I've come to that kind of team environment because it is, it's a sales team. They have a similar kind of mentality to footballers. You know, they you know, they like to take the mickey and have a laugh, but you have to do the serious work as well. So it's 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 miles apart from it, but it's a, it's the closest I can get to it. I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's 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 quite incredible the the journey that you've been on, really, from from playing football to then having to make you know, your life in something completely different. Um, I mean, just, just looking back on the individual players that you've played with, AD, um, yeah. if I was to ask you who the best player that you've ever played with, who, with, would, okay. yeah, who would be your, uh, who would be your top? If not, we can have a short list, but who would um, be your give you a short list. If you're going to ask me the best player, I would say Sean Murray. Um, Sean came from Portsmouth under the Steve Wicks regime. And I'd heard of him. He played for England. Uh, under 15 schoolboys and some other appearances further up the age groups. Um, and he came from Portsmouth and within within minutes, you just knew the kid was just incredible. Kid, he was my age. But uh, um, the stuff he did on the park was, was, you can give him the ball wherever and he would demand the ball wherever and there would be no problems with him dealing with it. Um, it was a bit of a shock to me as a centre-half being told to boot in the corners to all of a sudden have a guy of his quality coming short for him and giving him the ball and in turning and doing something with it. So my overall best ever player would be, would be short. I think a lot of the, uh, the, the fans would feel the same. He was, he was, he was special. Yeah. And, and the other side of the, of the spectrum with the best player um, that you've had the, the privilege of playing against, who would, who would be that? Um, best player I played against. I could, you could say Aaron Shearer. I think he'd only played a handful of games at Southampton. They beat us 3-1 at home and then I think we were 2-0 down in 90 seconds down at the down in the second leg and drew 2-2. Um, but so, yeah, probably Aaron Shearer. I don't think you get much bigger than that, can you? But uh, he, for, again, he was my sort of age, maybe maybe a little bit younger than me. Maybe, I don't know, but he was he was so strong for a guy that wasn't huge. Um I just remember his touch being incredible and he was playing up front with Ian Dow and for some, somehow I was marking um, him. And I think Hurstie was picking up Ian Dow probably because of the height or, or whatever. But yeah, that was, a, that was a tough couple of nights. That was against Alan Shearer. So yeah, I'd probably say him. Yeah, definitely. And um, in your career as a whole, as a, as a footballer, what would you, if you were to pinpoint your most memorable match that you've been involved with what what sort of memories come back to you when you talk when you're looking back at the at the most m- memorable one um i think the most memorable one for me i'd like to say my debut because it is something that's always special it was such a dour game it was 
it was dark and miserable. It was a 2-2 draw against Colchester, but it wasn't, you know, I was so nervous before the game, you know, the adrenaline gets you through. You don't really remember much about it. But I think that my favourite game, I think it was only my fourth game, we played Burnley at home and uh, we, we managed to beat them 4-2, I think. I think George Garney got sent off late on, but it was my first league goal. And I know, I know exactly what it was. It was 57 seconds into the game. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a, B, a B and Burnley, a big club. And, you know, I, I'd heard of people like Ron Futcher and Roger Eli and Brendan O'Connell and these guys who were playing for them. Um, and I had a pretty decent game, one, like I say, one four two. Um, and I think I, I was interviewed after by Jim Goodman. And, you know, it was like, it was surreal. It was like, what am I doing? I'm just playing with my mates a couple of weeks ago. Do you know what I mean? A couple yeah. of years ago. Um, so, yeah, to beat Burnley 4-2 at home and, uh, you know, against, against the big side, I think my first league goal was probably my biggest memory. Yeah, yeah definitely. It sounds um, sounds amazing. I mean, um, a lot of people won't know or they may know about um, your dad and the career that he had as a professional footballer yeah. and, and, yeah. and as well involved heavily in, in cricket. Um yeah. Was was your dad the the perfect role model for you going into a career in in football? It's, it's an interesting one with me, old man, because um, he did. He played he played for Bristol Rovers, Newport County, Plymouth. He scored in the I think they did beat Man United four 0 in fifty six, which was the Busby Babes, um, and he scored one of the goals. And that's kind of his his name's up on a flag with the other goals scorer still at the, the, the football ground. So he's a bit, bit of a famous footballer in in, in the West Country. Um, but cricket was his, his main love, and, and as it was mine. So, from an influence point of view, he he was he was away most of the time umpiring. You know, he was you know in the old days there was you know four or five day cricket game it might be Lancashire against Hampshire. So he'd be away Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday for that. They play a Sunday league game. They come back on the Monday if they're finished on the Monday, and they'd be off again on the Tuesday. Yeah. So he was never really around the family. Um, you know, he'd always come back with a bag of kit from Duncan Fernley or some shoes that Darren Gofford sent to him through, from Pony or whatever. So there's always these little kind of bits of him coming in and out of my sporting life. But I don't think he saw me play football until we played at, I think he came to Darlington and Huddersfield, Hereford, I think. The first game in one season we played away at Hereford. That was the first time he'd seen me play football since I was about 12. So there wasn't really any direct influence on me from a from a footballing perspective. From a cricket perspective, he would make sure I was in the nets from the age of twelve down the Derbyshire, and you know I, I progressed quite quickly. But that was with his support and with him kind of not, just just educating me, I suppose, a little bit. But again, was never around to see me play. So as an influence, not a massive one compared to some of the people that I could mention um, who have been influencers, but. Uh, you know, he, he, he's still here. He passed away in 2015, but, you know, he's still, still a hero in my eyes and, you know, what he did in the world of cricket. A couple of World Cup finals he had and he did the 81 test of Ian Botham at Headingley, um, you know, 24, 25 odd test matches. So, yeah, still, yeah, yeah, I miss him. Wow, that's... Um... That's incredible! What a what an amazing man, Eddie. Um, and so yeah, yeah, um, yeah, he's had, yeah, some, some good memories that we we've been along on some of the games he played in. in, yeah. in. Um, you know, some of amazing, um, yeah. amazing memories there. Um, yeah. Well, just before I I crack on with some questions that we've got in from the public, I just want to once again say a huge thank you to today's. Um, 
episode sponsor, which is the Valley Bar Sea Dogs. Um, of course, the supporters travel club um, for Scarborough Athletic Football Club. Um, now, you mentioned, Eddie, two blokes who uh, who keep in touch. They've both been in touch with me about getting uh, a question said to you. Uh, now, I know um, that you may have just answered this a, a little bit, um, but Stephen Adamson asks, how big of an influence was was Dad Barry, who was a professional footballer with Bristol Rovers yeah. and first-class critical yeah, yeah. with Gloucestershire, then a top test match umpire? I mean, I know you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but, yeah. um, you know, as he asks there, how big of an influence was he? Like I said before, not, not much, but I tell you what, when he was at the Games... I definitely up my game a little bit just to just to make him a little bit prouder. He must. I mean, he, he, he. I don't know where he was umpiring, but he, like I say, he went to Darlington on a on a Tuesday or Wednesday night that we played up there. He was at Hereford. He was at Huddersfield. Then he came over to Crew. Yeah, so whenever he could get there, he would come. And my, my other brother played for Stafford Rangers, so he was you know trying to make sure he gave at Christmas time as well and went to see. It. He played up probably Stan Collymore at Stafford, yeah. so my dad would always go and see him as well, but. Whenever I was in the crowd, it always kind of made me my chest come out a little bit bigger, and I could jump another two foot to make sure I could hit the ball properly. So, uh, yeah, it was um, it was always good to you know to for him to be there. But you know, sadly enough, you know, work for him was you know away from from me playing football. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Stuart Welsh has been in touch as well. Um, he Not asks, too. yeah, who he asks, uh, who's the worst opponent um, to play against? What, individually or as a team? Or, or Well, we could probably go with both, to be fair. I think I think Stuart knows this. I mean, the most difficult opponent was, was Billy Whitehurst, obviously, because he was just big, strong, aggressive, nasty, and really, really horrible to play against. And not a bad player, to be honest. He played at Newcastle and I think Sunderland and Sheffield United. But no, you'd never come off there without any you know, bruises or cuts or verbals. You know, he was the toughest one. Um, club-wise, I remember playing down at Cambridge early on in my first team days. I think it must have been 18, no, 90, 90, early 1990. And we went to Cambridge and there had people like Gary Rowell was there at the time, Alan Kimball, uh, John Taylor, Liam Daish, Dion Dublin. I think we got, we got thumped five, I think, down there, five-two. Um, it was like Land of the Giants and John Beck was their manager you might remember John Beck Charlie but he just used to launch it and he put sand in the corners of the pitches so the centre halves would just boot into the corner yeah. so it would hold up so the guys could get down there but that night it was just it was it, we got absolutely pummeled um, so I only played against them once but they, they were really tough um, and we played against a really good side at Blackpool Blackpool had um, again you won't remember him Alan Wright who went on to play for Villa Um Trevor Sinclair, he was playing for them. A guy called Paul Groves, who I played with at Burton Albion, who went on to play for Lincoln. And I think he's, I think he's still coaching at Premier League or he's been at West Brom in, in, in Portsmouth. Phil Stant was there. Um, Dave Bamber, Tony Rodwell. I think they were, they were under Billy Air. That team under Billy Air was, was a really, really good side. So possibly they were the two toughest opponents that we came up as a team. But, but Billy White is definitely from, a, from an individual one-on-one player. Yeah, definitely, and uh, and Craig um, Craig McCrory get has got in touch. So thank you for uh, for getting in touch with us. Um, and this question for for you, Ad, whose boots did you clean as an apprentice? Whose boots? Did I, I definitely did Rico, Steve Richards. But like I mentioned earlier, when we were there the first year, there was only three of us, and the guys weren't full time. 
so they had their boots with them. But I think definitely second year there was um, there was definitely Steve Richards, and I think Gary Brook, um, who is massively underrated from his time at Scarborough. What a centre forward he was! So I think I did those two. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure. I don't definitely don't remember getting the Christmas tip off any of them, but it's um, yeah. I'd like, I think I think it was those two guys. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, thank you to everyone who's who's got in touch. I know it was uh, it was last minute to to put questions out, um, but Eddie, for you now, um, you know we're coming to the end of of hopefully to the end of the pandemic. What's yeah. what sort of the the future? What's the next sort of couple of years hold for yourself? I want to start travelling again. Before the pandemic, we did um, me and my wife. We we travelled probably 10, 15 countries. Yeah, beautiful. Went to Rio. Went to the Philippines. Been to Australia to watch the ashes. Um, you know, we've been to Cuba. Um, we've been to so many places together. And then, my, you know, Kate, my wife, she's travelled, you know, 80, 85 countries. You know, I'm, I'm very, very far behind her. So I want to start catching up with her and seeing some of, uh, you know, some of more far-flung places as well as a lot of places in Europe. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of, you know, spending more time. My kids are growing up too fast. Uh, my eldest has now bought her first house and she's got a job at uh, the fire service. That's Molly. I've got Izzy, who's just finished her A-levels. Archie's at college. And, and Freddie, my youngest, is, 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 is a dancer. And he's absolutely, he's been on the, the kid's voice as well. So just seeing them grow up as well and kind of spending a little bit more time with them um, is good. But of course, they're at the age now where, you know, they've got other things on while they're spending time with dad. But, yeah, spend more time with them, do a bit more travelling and um, just, just live life, Charlie, and, and enjoy it well. You know, while we can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, do you think uh, a return to to Scarborough to your to your hunting ground maybe uh, maybe in in the offing in the next couple of years? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you've mentioned a few times the Valley Bar Sea Dogs. Uh, I'm just waiting for an invite, and I'll be up there in, in in the bar before the game and have a few beers with the lads. Um, there's quite a, I'm quite lucky. There's quite a few venues around here where they'll be playing. So I think they've got Michelover. Um, they've got Matlock, yep. um, not Matlock, so Matlock, is it? Buxton. So there's quite a few around here, and I'll, I'll go along to the home, to, to the away games that are around this way. And I would like to get up again, you know, sometime when it's uh, when there's a decent home game to come to. Yeah, exactly. And um, just before we we break off, we'll just have a bit of a general chat about football um, in general. Now that we're at the at the back end of the pandemic and and everything's looking um you know looking like we may return to some sort of normality um how important is it now that football clubs get fans back into the stadiums as as soon as possible after such a long time away i think it's huge um you know you hear especially during the euros when you you hear some of the players it's one of the first things that they say you know it's, it's just great to have the fans back and i think the game in hungary was a full capacity i think when they the 60,000 in there so just here, and you, I'm watching a lot of the cricket at the moment, the the hundred and uh, and the Test match started today, and seeing crowds back in at those venues is great as well. So it's good for all sports. Um, I think for you know, the revenue that it generates, not just through ticket sales, but from merchandise and and refreshments and you know the, the extra sales within within the stadiums is is just as vital. Um, because I, it does worry me that you will see some clubs go to the wall. Um, so it's vital that the fans are back in there. It's 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 scary to see. I mean, we didn't play in front of huge ground, huge huge fans, but you know, we, it was amazing just to have fifteen hundred in down the Sema Road. You know, the noise that they would generate. Um, you know, I think we played Wrexham one night on a Friday night, and there was four hundred there, and it was 
you know, you, you can tell as a player, you feed off the fans and it, it definitely helps. Even away games, you're playing in front of 12,000 at Burnley, you know, and they're giving you abuse, but it's, it's, it, it kind of gets you going a little bit more because there's more people there. The atmosphere's louder and it, it's just, the adrenaline starts pumping a little bit more. So I think it's vital, firstly, for the players to, to feed off. More importantly, for the fans to actually be there and see it and support their teams again. But, you know, from a commercial point of view, it's vital that it happens and, you know, it's uh, it, it's managed well um, commercially by the, by the clubs. Yeah, definitely. I guess there's you may we may now see sides who potentially suffered last year um, with performances change because as soon as as you mentioned, there, you walk out of the tunnel, you you yeah. hear the crowd. It's not silent. There's there's so much more going. It, it, it's going to be some sort of normality that a lot of people have have really missed, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think the Bundesliga reported record amounts of, of away wins. Um, you know, with with no fans being there, it just becomes a bit of more of a leveller. Um, you know, you've got some big crowds over there because they were in football properly over there with tickets at the right price in certain areas that that's safe to stand in. Um, but you would see some of the, the you know the, the clubs that would never get an away win starting to win away. So I think there's there's a lot that can be taken from that. Um, you know, from a from a performance perspective, but. You know, once the crowds start getting back in and you have that 12th man, you know, see people like Liverpool with a cop or Dortmund with the yellow wall, it does it does help you. It must, it must help you. It's, uh, yeah, it's vital. Yeah, and um, just finally, how are uh, how are Derby going to do this season? Are they going to uh, turn things well, around? We, yeah, we still don't know where we are with point deductions, do we, because of what's gone on. And, um, you know, that's still hanging over our heads. I think we've only got nine registered players and we kick off on Saturday against Huddersfield at home. Um, it's a, it's a bit of a mess, Charlie. If I'm honest, and um, you know, from two years ago when we were at the playoff final under Frank Lampard with Mason Mount and Tamori and Harry Wilson playing for us, to now be looking at people like Phil Jagielka and Ravel Morrison that are down there, Jack Wilshire all on trial. Do you know what I mean? It's um, it's completely different, and it's it is a massive worry for a club like ours that is is pretty big. Um, you know, the loyal fan base. It sold 19,000 season tickets every year, but I just can't see that happening this year because the fans are getting so disillusioned with what's going on down there. It's uh, it's a bit of a mess. And, you know, you'd like to think Wayne Mooney would have enough about him to pull us through this. So, well, let's see. I think he's got a tough year ahead of him, but it'll be interesting. Definitely be interesting. Yeah, well, he uh, he managed to to somehow manufacture your safety into the into the to the championship for another year. Do you feel as if... Yeah. The re- a relegation from the championship may have been the best thing for the club, or do you think staying up's probably financially helped the club? In, in, in I think in- staying up is important. You know, it's important that we're in that league. We, you know, I'm not going to say we should be Premier League because we shouldn't. We've been out of it for 14 years now, but um, it's important that the club don't go any further down. If it happens, it happens, and maybe we have to shed a few players, and maybe he has to go, and we lose his salary if we go down with a points relegation. But uh, yeah, it's uh, tricky times ahead, Charlie. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and just finally, Eddie, before I um, before I let you go, um, your previous gaffer Neil Warnock is now in charge of Middlesbrough. Um, yeah. Just how do you think he's going to do? Do you think this will be his last ever year in in management, or will he continue? To- <laughs> he's probably said that a few times, hasn't he? Yeah. Will he continue I to pull the strings? A, yeah, I think he's got a good chance up there. He seems to be bringing in some. I think he's a couple of Cardiff players are in there at the moment, aren't they? And, I think he's, you know, he definitely got the players working for him. Um, it's such a tough division, the championship, isn't it? There's so many good clubs around and it's always tight from top to bottom and, and the clubs in the middle of the league as well. So it's, uh, 
Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how Borough get on. I'm not a big Borough fan. They're kind of one of our bogey teams. So uh, I'd rather we finish above Borough, but uh, I can't see it this year, Charlie. Yeah. Um, well, no, thank you very much, Eddie, for, for joining me on the Coast and County uh, Radio Extra Time podcast. Um, have you enjoyed yourself this evening? Yeah, yeah, I've loved it, mate. It's been good to catch up and have a chat about the old days. I'd like also to mention uh, yeah, my, my condolences to the family of Jeff Barnby um, and Colin Appleton this year as well. Um, and also Ernie Moss, not not you know a huge appearance maker at Scarborough, but in our level of football, he was a bit of a legend. He must have played seven, eight hundred games across a few clubs. So to lose all three of those gentlemen this year has been you know a bit of a shock and, and really tough to take. So my thoughts with all of their families at this at this you know real tough time for them all. Yeah, exactly. I'll reiterate what um, what Adi said there. That my thoughts go out to to all the family um, members. And I guess Adi, I know you've, you you just touched on that, but at times like these, when everyone is so reflective on everything as a whole, I guess when things like this happen, it, it touches a little bit more, doesn't it, to the heart that you've lost such a legend of a football club. It does. I mean, I think you introduced me as one at the beginning, which is which is not I'm not, not I'm not worthy of that. There's a lot of people get called legends now. We're just ex players. When you talk about Colin Appleton, you talk about Jeff Barnby, you know, these are legends of the club that should be held in that that really high esteem. I think people have mentioned on some of the forums of statues, I couldn't think of anything better, either in the town or outside the ground. You know, if the ground's not ours, well, we put it there, I don't know. But, you know, I think something needs to be done by by the local council to to show the respect for these two absolute giants of the football club. Very sad times, Charlie. Yeah, yeah, definitely very, uh, very sad times. Um, well, if you have enjoyed listening to today's episode, um, then you can catch Andrew's episode. It's the first episode um, of the Coast and County Radio Extra Time podcast with John Green. Um, that's on all of the uh, the music streaming apps, Spotify, etc. And there's plenty of interviews on there as well. Um, but I've been Charlie Hopper. I've been joined by A.D. Mayer here on the Cozen County Radio Extra Time podcast. Uh, we'll have plenty more of news on the next guests in the next couple of weeks. Um, but thank you very much for listening uh, and enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>